scripture is in Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47. I want to thank Bailey Kerr for, um, for translating the scripture and the outline and everything for our, our guest this morning. And she said to her, her dad, said last week Michael only had two scriptures. This week he's got all these scriptures. She had to interpret all that into Creole. So thank you, Bailey, for doing that for us. But Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47, we'll read those verses together in just a few minutes. But today and tomorrow, thousands of people will be pouring into Phoenix, Arizona for the 2017 Southern Baptist Convention, the conference that will be happening there. And as, the, as we are getting ready for this week and, and knowing what will come out of there and, and seeing the election of our of the people who will lead us throughout the next year. Um, there has been a lot of statistics uh, released over the past week from uh, various groups in our denomination, and some of them are quite startling. I'll, I'll share some of those with you this morning. I think we have a slide that has some of those um, statistics on them. But we have the lowest number of, as we, as we come to this week, in our denomination, we have the lowest number of baptisms since 1946. Um, we have the lowest membership in our denomination since 1999. And we have the lowest worship attendance since 1996 as Southern Baptists. Now, we have more churches today than we've ever had. The rate of churches that we are opening is outpacing our baptisms and our membership and our worship attendance by a large number. But even with 479 new churches in 2016, we have the lowest baptisms, membership, and worship attendance that we've had in a very, very long time. Now, I want to say this as I begin this sermon, as I... As the, title of it is an ancient plan for a modern church it fits here at first baptist piedmont it would fit in any southern baptist church in our denomination i was not asked to come to phoenix and share this sermon with the southern baptist convention for some reason i have no idea why but um but i want to i want to say this what i'm going to preach this morning we'll wade through a lot of things about who we are and about where we are but i want to say this i identify first and foremost as a born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. I identify as someone who has repented of their sins, has found forgiveness in no other place but the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I share these statistics with you because they are relevant to us because we are a Southern Baptist church. Um, I do proudly identify as a Southern Baptist. When I um, became a Christian and I began to study and I began to, to, uh, to ask God's direction, from my life, I found that um, the doctrine and theology of the Southern Baptist Church, the work of the cooperative program, the, um, the mission work, the mission-mindedness of Southern Baptists led me to know that I wanted to identify with being Southern Baptist. So those are some of those statistics that we have there. Now, you see that first from 15,000 churches with no baptisms. Ms. Mohan ha had a great um, post yesterday that I really enjoyed. Now, a lot of those churches probably led someone to the Lord, but those people may have gone to another church to be baptized or 
or something, so that may be a little bit skewed. But we know that these things are, are happening in our denomination, and they are quite startling to think about as we move forward. Because we know that we live in a society, we live in a world where the gospel needs to be reaching every person. And we know that there are more barriers to doing that now than there ever have been. But we must be steadfast and move ahead in doing what we need to do to win people to the Lord. So let's look at this, these verses here in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse number 41. And let's see how this first church in Jerusalem, were, uh, how, how they were uh, so significant in the eyes of God that he allowed Luke to write about them and to share what they were doing in, in this church. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now this is on the hills. This is a part of Simon Peter's great sermon there on the day of Pentecost. He, 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 begins, he gives this great sermon, and 3,000 souls were won to the Lord Jesus. Now here's what happens. And hear how, how those people begin to live their lives. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now Luke gives a very descriptive account of the church in Jerusalem after the day of Pentecost. I think if you go through there and read, there's about 15 verbs that he uses to describe. They're a very active church. They're active in their fellowship. They're active in their demonstration of Christ's love. And they're active in evangelism. They are, they are movers and shakers in the city of Jerusalem. Now, have you ever had a friend who, no matter what get-rich scheme came along, that friend wanted to be a part of that get-rich scheme and try to have wealth that would just happen overnight. Any of you know those people? I used to work um, with a, there was a couple that I used to work with. And every get-rich scheme that came along, they were a part of it. And not only were they a part of it, but most of them were those Ponzi kind of pyramid schemes where they tried to pull all their friends into it also and, and tell you, hey, if you become a part of this, you're going to get rich and so-and-so from uh, Montana, they got rich doing this, and, and you can too. You ever had those friends who try to pull you into those things? So how many of those friends of yours who are a part of those things, how many of them are rich today? None of them? No, probably not. But here's what's happened in church life. Over the past couple of decades, we've tried every gimmick. We've tried every fast growth plan. We've tried every increased baptism plan that comes along. We've tried everything, everything that comes through. Every, everybody wants to jump on it. Hey, it worked here in this church, so obviously it'll work here. 
And so many churches grab hold of, of each gimmick that comes through, and none of them work the way that God's plan does. None of them work the way that Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. None of them work as well as what that does. Jim Collins said in his great book, uh, uh, Good to Great, he said if you want to become great, you do the right thing, and you do it over and over every day. And that's what we see here in Acts chapter 2. This church was doing the right thing, and they were doing it over and over, day by day, and God was blessing them with souls that were being saved. So as we look at this this morning, and we look at the modern church, and we see the statistics of the Southern Baptists, and we know that most denominations are even in more decline than what we are, I want to share with you just a few things that I think um, would work from looking at these scriptures that work there and I believe work today. First of all, we have to do more praying than we do preaching. Now, most preachers might stand and say, might be afraid to make that statement because if they said do more praying than preaching, they might be afraid that, hey, we would just meet every Sunday and have prayer. We wouldn't need a preacher and they'd be out of a job. Nowhere in God's Word does it ever say that we were supposed to be a house of preaching, but what does God's Word say over and over? We were supposed to be a house of prayer. We were supposed to be a praying people. This group of people here in Jerusalem devoted themselves to fellowship with God and with one another. They devoted themselves to spending, they devoted themselves to the discipline of prayer. And because they were so devoted to prayer, they were praying for one another and it was increasing their fellowship with one another because they were praying about each other's needs. They were devoted to the discipline of prayer. Look at verse number 47 again. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Now, it's a summary of the essentials, the essential elements needed in Christian discipleship. It's everything right there in that verse that gives us the total sum of everything that we should be doing as disciples of Jesus. But the most important one of these things is the fact that they had this significant prayer life. Now they are learning things from the apostles. The apostles are teaching them things that they had learned from their experience of being right there every day with the Lord Jesus Christ. But the most important thing that they had learned from Jesus was his prayer life. In Luke chapter 11, verse 1, they come to Jesus and they, they say this question. Lord, they, they give him this statement, Lord, teach us to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. We have watched your pattern. We have watched your consistency. We have watched you pull away every day. We've watched you go and spend time with the Father alone, and we see as a result of that, we see the greatest miracles that have ever been performed on this earth. We hear the greatest teaching and preaching that has ever been heard here on this earth. And we know that this is all a result of the fact that you go and you pull away and you have consistent daily prayer life. You see, it's obvious as we read the scriptures, if you read the account of the gospels, Jesus prayed more than he preached. He prayed much more than he preached. Now, I made this statement not long ago. 
If I only had one moment, if there was only one sentence that I could give to you, and it was the last thing that I could say uh, from this pulpit, it would be this, and without a shadow of a doubt, a prayerless Christian is a powerless Christian. A Christian who is not spending daily time in prayer, a Christian who is not, uh, has a consistent prayer life is a powerless Christian. Now what would that say about us as a corporate body, as a church? That a prayerless church would be a powerless church. This church that we're reading about here this morning, in just a couple of chapters we will see them in Acts chapter 4, they will meet together as their leaders begin to be uh, taken to jail and as they begin to become persecuted. This church will get together in Acts chapter 4 and they will pray for boldness in such a way that the walls shake in the house that they're meeting in. Everything hinges on their prayer life. Everything that they do starts with how they pray. And in the midst of all these things, they're praying for boldness to continue on to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. I read this statement this week. It said, the more we pray, the more we sense our need to pray, and the more we sense a need to pray, the more we want to pray. Do you want to pray? Do you have a sense of your need to pray? Do you have a desire every day to come to the Lord and pray? Jim Cimbala said this as he uh, started his uh, great work there at the Brooklyn Tabernacle Church in Brooklyn. He talked about the story of how this church began. And they began with about eight or nine people, and their offerings on Sundays would be anywhere from $20 to $30. And he had an usher who was stealing about half of that money so they didn't even have enough money to pay the bills. They were meeting in a dilapidated building in, in, uh, in a very crime-infested area in Brooklyn. And he said that uh, he began to pray and he began to ask God about what to do. And he went away for a few days. He had gotten sick and his father-in-law had asked him to come down to Florida and spend some time there to recover. And so he went away and he was praying and he said that he was on a fishing, a charter fishing boat with about 25 other people. And he got away alone with those people and he began to ask God, what, what is it that we need to do? And God said, go back, begin to emphasize prayer and make everything hinge on prayer and I'll begin to bless what you're doing. So Jim Simbola goes back and he begins, they had a Tuesday prayer meeting and he began to talk to them about what God had told him. And there in the midst of about 50 people, an evangelist who was supposed to bring the message that night stood up and said these words. He said, you can tell how popular a church is by who comes on Sunday morning. You can tell how popular the pastor or evangelist is by who comes on Sunday night. But you can tell how popular Jesus is by who, by who comes to prayer meeting. Think about that. The time that we have designated and set aside to come and pray for our needs and to pray for our, our community and to pray for the things that are going on, 
That's how you tell how popular Jesus is by who comes to prayer meetings. Wow. And he said from that moment on, on Tuesday afternoons, people began to flood into their church and begin to pray. And today the Brooklyn Tabernacle Church, some of you have been there, it is one of the largest churches in America. And if you, want a, if you have a prayer need, go to their website, type that prayer need in, and they have people who are there 24 hours a day who are praying over prayer needs. That's powerful. That's powerful. Now, we need that here. We need that in our city. We need that in our community. We need to be the church that is a house of prayer. We do a good job praying, but it needs to grow and it needs to intensify and our prayers need to become more urgent. We live in a community. I can remember I've had people tell me about the prayer life of people in our community. I've had people tell me that over here in the Mill Village during World War II, before the homes in that area were, had air conditioning, and people had their windows raised in the evening. They said during World War II, if you walked down the street in the Mill Village, that you could hear mothers and fathers down on their knees pleading and begging with God for the safe return of their sons who were gone to Europe for, for the war. Those are powerful prayers. Those are, those are pleading, urgent prayers. But let me tell you something this morning. We're in a war. We are in a war. And if you don't understand that, I, I don't know where you or your mind is or where you're living, but we have more of our sons and daughters dying now than we did then. We have more of our sons and daughters dying now than at any time in any war that's ever been fought. And they're dying because of the drug abuse and the hopelessness of this life and the lies of this world are killing them and taking them and we're losing them, and we should be on our knees continuously praying for them and praying for this city and praying for God to break the hold that, it, that these things have here. We are in a war, and we need to be praying. We need to be praying more than we're preaching. God can do more in ten minutes of sincere and earnest prayer than he could do in ten of the best sermons that any men could come and deliver from this pulpit. Through our prayers and through our consistent prayers. And then we need to be more practical than we are prominent. They were devoted. This group was devoted themselves to learning the word of God. And it was revealed to them through the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to the discipline of study. As believers today... We are to consult God's written word regularly, asking the Holy Spirit to illuminate our mind to understand and apply scriptural truth. We need to be praying every day about what we're reading and asking God, the Holy Spirit, to open our mind to understand and apply the scriptural truth that we're reading. Psalm 119 says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Without this, we're lost wandering around in the darkness. And we need to be reading it every day. Scriptural truth. How's the church in America doing when it comes to applying scriptural truth? Here's the sad report on how our biblical worldview is doing. Borna Research says 
that only 17% of people who, are, who identify as Christians in America have a biblical worldview. Now, what is a biblical worldview? A, a biblical worldview states things like this. It's a belief that there are absolute moral truths that exist. That there is a black and white, right and wrong, that God's word is black and white, and that there's no gray area to it, and that we should live by it. That's a part of biblical worldview. It also says that the Bible is totally accurate in all the principles it teaches. I believe that the Bible is completely inerrant. I believe that there is absolutely no error, no fallibility, nothing wrong with God's word as it's written. But only 17% of people who identify as Christians believe that. Biblical worldview says that Satan is a real being, not really, not merely a symbol, a symbolic symbol of evil. Biblical worldview says that a person cannot earn their way into heaven by doing good works. A biblical worldview says that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life on earth and that God is the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the world who still rules the universe today. Only 17% of people who say that they are Christians in America believe all those things about the Bible. And I trust Barna because they've been doing this for close to 80 years, these researches. Now, if you believe those things this morning, what does the world think of you? If you believe all those things this morning, what does the world think of you? You don't care. Miss Diane says she doesn't care. <laughs> Amen. As we, as we witnessed this past week, if you carry those beliefs and you sit in front of a congressional hearing for, a congressional, for an appointment to a job with the federal government, that there are senators who will tell you that because you believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to heaven, one person, one appointment this week was told that his beliefs were hateful, Hateful and, and intolerable. Wow. A United States senator looked at that person and said, not just, oh, not just that you say you're a Christian, that's, that's not bothering me that you say you're a Christian. What bothers me is that you believe what Christ said, that he was the way, the truth, and the life. It's frightening. But I believe it, and I, I love it, and I want to live it until the day that he calls me home. And here's one of the problems. With, with what you see, those statistics that we looked at just a little while ago, we have been more worried in our denomination. We've been more worried about being kingmakers than we have been kingdom builders. We've been more worried about being kingmakers and kingdom builders. We've been more worried about being the chaplain for the Republican Party instead of being the prophetic voice for all of America. 
Because I'm going to tell you something. They hadn't done a whole lot for me. I'm sorry. But they haven't. And that's where we have, we have failed is we have not tried to bring everybody under the tent of the umbrella of the gospel. And we have not been worried about those things. And as a result, we are a diminishing group of people. We have to be the prophetic voice for all of America, for everyone, and we have to try to reach every person. Our Sunday school lesson went along with this this morning. It was, it was so neat to be able to, to read God's Word this morning. This is how God said that we are to be more practical. He said He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which He commanded our fathers to teach to the children that, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God but keep His commandments and that they should not be like their fathers a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. He said it's our responsibility every single day as parents and grandparents to teach our children what we know about Scripture and to teach our children about what God has done in the past and about the wisdom that He's given us and we are to help, uh, we are to begin as young as we possibly can. And we are also supposed to help equip parents to know how to be the first line Christian educators of their children. That's our task as a church. And, and we do that. When a child comes to this church, from the moment they're born, when they walk in those back doors, Barbara and Larry are going to grab those children and they're going to love on those children and they're going to take care of those children and those children are going to know how loved and, and how special they are. And then when they leave there, they're going to go to another group of people who are going to begin to talk to them about, about their relationship with the Lord and about what God has done. And those things are going to be instilled in them. And as they continue to grow, we're going to continue to educate them and teach them about the ways of the Lord. But here's the deal. If it's not being first taught at home, you can't rely on this for one or two hours a week to do everything that those children need. We have to be the first-line Christian educators of our children. Think about this. The average kid who goes to a public school is going to spend 15,000 hours getting a secular education. Now, unfortunately, part of that time is going to be spent with science classes where they're going to be taught that they were mo no more than slime that crawled up out of the, the water and evolved through uh, billions of years through evolu uh, evolution. They're going to be uh, taught um, in a, a, some ways in um, secular education. They're going to be taught some things that go completely against in history and in social stuff that go completely against what we would teach as Christian parents. 
So it's our job to know and understand and to be able to back up God's Word and to teach our children how to understand that. Now, so far, I have become very unpopular in about 20 minutes' time um, because a lot of you think I'm meddling. A lot of you think that these are things that aren't any of my business. But here's, here's, the, here's the deal. We are fast-headed to the next generation being completely... We, we are not that great at being biblically literate ourselves. We are headed to the next generation knowing nothing about the things of God and knowing nothing about a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've got to shore these things up. If you think that after 15,000 hours of secular education where they're hearing those things, if you think that they can come here as children and sit in a room and, and color a picture of Noah's Ark and think that that's going to combat everything that they're going to hear uh, against God and against the things that they, then you're seriously wrong. And we have got to take a hard look at everything we do here and make sure that we are equipping our, cho our children and grandchildren to be able to go and to live the life that God wants them to live in this society that we live in. Awanas is one of the greatest ways that we've been able to do that. As I said in the sanctuary last week, and I talked to children about becoming a Christian, it was apparent that the children that I spoke with had been involved in Bible study outside of vacation Bible school. It was apparent. It was, this was the most knowledgeable group of kids that I've ever sat with in all the years that I've been counseling people in vacation Bible school. And I believe that Awanas is the reason for that because of the scripture that they're learning. But we have to take a hard look at everything that we're doing. I have sat down this past week and I have begun to look at what we do in discipleship, Sunday school, Sunday evenings, how we're, we're just not consistent in, in these things. We have to have a place in our church, in our weekly schedule, where we have consistent evangelism going on. But here's what I'm, I'm more concerned with. It's not just a program where we go out and leave from here. I'm more concerned with everyday evangelism. With you knowing every day where you work. Whether you work um, in a school or whether you work in a jail or whether you work um, in a grocery store. I'm more concerned with you being able to every day in a conversation tell someone what you know about Jesus. And then I'm more concerned with us becoming a church where we are one-on-one -on -one discipling each other and helping each other to grow. So those are the, the, the things we have to be more practical in what we do. So then, finally, we have to be more present than we are preoccupied. Think about these believers in Jerusalem. They're impacting those who had not yet responded to Peter's message. You couldn't ignore what was going on there in this church in Jerusalem. When 3,000 people come to Jesus, 
And then they began to meet house to house, place to place all over the city of Jerusalem. You can't ignore it. You will never be able to ignore a genuine move of the Holy Spirit. Never be able to ignore it. We read about our, our history and the great awakenings, the great revivals that happened throughout the history, especially there in the 19th century when great men like Moody and, and Finney and those men, when they would come to a town. I, I read an account one time where Billy Sunday preached a week-long revival service in Chicago, Illinois, and when he was finished, people were there at the train station. They met the train as it came in, and they took the barrels of liquor off of the train and busted them with axes. That's how, that's how what a great awakening happened there in the city of Chicago during, those, during a time like that. People, people didn't go anywhere. They went to church on Sunday. They respected Sunday. They, it couldn't be ignored. As believers, we are to do all we can to maintain the spirit of love and unity in our churches in order to demonstrate to the world that Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life. If we're living any other way, then we're not attractive to the world. If we're not living in love and unity among ourselves, then we aren't attractive to anyone else. Now notice this in the scriptures here. Two times it uses this phrase. It says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Two times it uses, uh, Luke uses the description day by day. First of all, day by day, they were attending the temple together. They were continuing to go to worship together. See, we've become preoccupied with too many things outside of the church. We've become preoccupied. Church has become a multiple choice thing on Sunday. Let me tell you, church attendance on Sunday morning is a Saturday night decision. You've got to have a plan to get up and to come to church. You've got to be prepared all week to come to church. There's going to be things that arise and come up that will keep you from coming to church if you allow them to. You have to make the effort to be here. I look at, at Christians in our community and I, I look at the total of our churches here in Piedmont and, and it doesn't seem like there's the effort to be where we should be like there used to be. Boy, I better stop. If we put the effort, if we put the effort in the church that we put into tip-off clubs and booster clubs, what would our churches be like? What could we be doing in this community? What could we be doing to win people to the Lord if we put the effort into this church that we put into our children's athletics? We create opportunities not to be here. Wow. And then it goes on to say this. Day by day the Lord added those who were being saved. The effort that was made day by day attending the temple together 
praying together, breaking bread together, not being preoccupied with the things outside, but being preoccupied with Jesus. And then because of that, day by day, the Lord added those who were being saved. Every single day, the Lord was adding to their church people who were being saved. It says here that they had favor with all the people. Look at what they were doing up here. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. They were being recklessly, well, I won't use the word recklessly, but they were being um, generous in a way that no one had ever seen before. And because of that, the people, they had favor with all the people. Now this doesn't mean that, that they gave away everything and there was nobody who had any possessions and that they lived in some commune somewhere like a bunch of hippies. That's not what this means. What it means is, is that as they saw needs of other people, they made sure that those people were taken care of. They were good stewards of what God had given to them. And because of that, they had favor with all the people. Right now, we have favor with people in Piedmont. It's unusual for a church to have favor with people in their community a lot of times, but because of some of the ministries that we have been a part of, because of the, um, the free yard sale, and because of Park Fest, and because of our presence in the community, we have favor with people who, when we tell them, when I see them in the grocery store, they come up and tell me how these things have impacted their life, and it makes it easier for me to begin to invite them to church and to share the gospel with them. We have to continue to pray and find ways to be out in the community and to be a presence in our community and not be preoccupied with all the things that could weigh us down. There's a lot of, there's a lot of churches that are very busy at their church but they're not busy about being out in their community and winning those people. The next thing that we have coming up is the community-wide vacation Bible school that Donna is leading with other churches in our city. And it gives us another opportunity to be a presence here in Piedmont and to tell people about the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we have to be praying about. We don't live in a world anymore to where we can put our sign outside and put our times and people are going to ride by and say they're open at 10.15. I think I'll jump in there and see what it's all about. We live in a time where we have to leave here and go there and tell them. We live in a time where we have to leave here, go there, and meet physical needs and know that God will bless our efforts. Now, I'm finished. I think I still have three friends. But God laid this on my heart. God laid this on my heart when I came into this to my office on Monday morning. And I sat down at my desk and I opened my Bible and I, I, I was doing my daily, my daily reading. And then I was doing my prayers. I was praying. And I got toward the end of my prayer. And everything that I just said here, God said to me as I was sitting there. I think I told one of you, as I was finishing my prayer, I was having to write. Because God was telling me these things so fast. None of this is my opinion. 
None of this is my personal preference to have to stand here and say because it makes people uncomfortable. It makes people mad at me. And whether y'all realize this or not, I like to be liked just like the rest of you. But I can't not come here and say what God told me to say. I can't do it. I'm not going to stand before God someday and say, God, I wrote 10 books and I was, you know, I was, uh, I was popular among this group of people. I was, I'm going to stand before God someday and I'm going to have to give an account and say, I preach what you told me to preach. And at that moment in time, I hope that he'll say, well done. You did what I told you to do. This morning, I've said what I had to say. And I'll probably have to sit by myself at lunch. But that's all right. That's all right. God is speaking to some of your hearts this morning. He's troubling some of your hearts, and he's speaking to your hearts, and I want you to respond. I want you, whether you're sitting, where you do it, where you're sitting, where you are, or whether you do it, no matter where you are, come to this altar, no matter where you do, God wants to make these things right in our lives and have fellowship with us in the way that we should. I began conversations with a couple of people this past week. In 2020, our church will be 150 years old. 150 years ago, a group of Baptists got together and decided that they needed a place to worship, and they founded this church. The average life of a church is 70 years. We'll be 150 in three years if the Lord doesn't return for us. That is something to praise God for. But if the Lord tarries and he doesn't come back in 150 years from now, I want Piedmont First Baptist to be, still be standing strong on this corner, representing Jesus, preaching God's word, going and doing missions, and winning people to Jesus. And I want someday for them to look back 150 years and say there was a group of people back in 2017 who took a stand for God's word and who says we're going to live the way that God's called us to live. And as a result of that, we're still here today. Will you be those people? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And I pray this morning that it would penetrate our hearts, open our eyes, and bring us closer to you. Father, I don't believe in a lot of gimmicks. I don't believe in a lot of... I just believe in preaching Jesus and Him crucified. And Father, I pray this morning that if there's someone here who doesn't know Christ as their Savior, they will hear your message and just as children have done this week, they'll be obedient and following you for the rest of their lives. Maybe there are people here this morning who've never been baptized or they know that they're supposed to be a part of this fellowship. Father, would you work in their hearts today? Father, maybe some of these things were for us as individuals. 
I know that as you gave them to me Monday morning, they were for me first. Father, I pray this morning that as we have this time of invitation and reflection and worship, I pray that we'll be obedient to everything you say. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand if you have any decision that you need to make public or you need to pray here? Would you come?